0: Well, good morning, Sandville Church. Good morning. As Curtis said, my name is Colton Willie, and it is my pleasure to be with you all here this morning. Now, some of you might know me. I've been going to Sandville for about nine years now, and some of you might not have any idea who I am. Who's this guy, right? I go by many names around here, specifically my VBS aliases. Some might recognize me as the intrepid YouTuber Axel Wilder. Others might recognize me as the grumpy construction worker, Neil Newman, and still others might know me as the villainous Connor McMurphy. Indeed, any other time I've been up on the stage, I've been in some ridiculous costume, so this is a pretty big improvement. But still, probably my most recognized, if I'm honest, my most recognized role is I'm Rachel Willie's husband. It's about my lot in life. You see, my lovely wife, Rachel, has been on staff here at St. Louisville church for the last three years. She stepped away from that role, but she served in the St. Louisville Kids Ministry. And whenever I meet someone new or someone who has been, been here for a while, I just lead with that. Oh yeah, I'm Rachel's husband. Oh, Rachel, we love Rachel. Instant brownie points. <laughs> all that being said, and all jokes aside, I really love this church. I met the girl in my dreams in this church. I've been able to serve and meet many wonderful people in this church. But most important of all, in this church, Say Little Church, the Word of God has come alive to me. And so, as has been shared with me for the last nine years from this very spot, I now have the privilege, the delight, and the honor to share with you this morning. So if you brought a copy of God's Word, I would invite you to find Isaiah 6. (laughs) The people that are new here are like, this is a giggly church. (laughs) But really, uh, if you've been around within the last couple weeks, you know that our church planner, Adam Beecher, taught last week, and he taught in Isaiah 6. Then right before that, uh, Paul Seymour, our very own worship pastor, He taught on Isaiah 6, and as much as I'd love to keep the train rolling, uh, we're going to do something different. Um, Adam Beecher said, uh, if the guy comes up this week and he doesn't preach Isaiah 6, walk out of the church. Please don't do that. It's my first time. And so we won't be jumping into Isaiah 6, but we will be looking at Psalm 16. So again, if you have a copy, I'd invite you there. C.S. Lewis, the famous Christian author, once said, I believe in Christianity as I believe that the sun has risen. Not only because I see it, but because by it, I see everything else. Psalm 16, as we're going to see today, is a psalm of confidence in God. It is a declaration that the living God, as revealed in Scripture, is man's ultimate source of confidence and security. Indeed, my friends, it is this confidence, as we're about to go into, more than anything else that has changed the way I view God, myself, and the world around me. And if you let it this morning, it's a kind of confidence that will change your life. And so as we dive in today, I would ask you, What are you confiding in? Where does your confidence lie? You see, everyone confides in, has confidence in something. Maybe you have confidence in your spouse. That's a good thing to do. Maybe you have confidence you're going to have a job tomorrow. Maybe you have confidence that your health will hold up. Maybe you have confidence that your bank account, your 401k will last. Your investments will hold. Maybe it's something as simple as the sun will rise tomorrow. Indeed, every day of our life is rooted in what we're confiding in. You could say that our confidence shapes our reality. The only way that I make sense of the world, the only way you make sense of the world, is through what you're confiding in. And what does the psalmist, the author of Scripture, confide in? Psalm 16, verse 1. Preserve me, O God, for I take refuge in you. I said to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good besides you. As for the saints who are in the earth, they are the majestic ones in whom is all my delight. So the psalmist's only good, his only confidence is God himself. Indeed, you noticed he mentioned the godly people, the saints that were in his life. Why does he delight in them? Well, because they mainly point him back to the confidence he has in God. Indeed, that's why we meet today, Christians, so that we might boomerang the glory of God back and forth to one another. And yet notice what comes before the statement of confidence. The very first word, preserve me, O God, for I take refuge in you. Preserve is to maintain, to hold firm, to stand fast. What's the psalmist doing there? He's crying for help. Even though the psalm is racked with confidence, it starts with a plea for help. Maybe some of you need to be preserved today. You see, Psalm 16 is a form of proactive worship. In need of a newfound confidence in God, the psalmist, as we'll see, is going to rehearse three major truths that made him confident in the first place. And so starting in verse 4, Our very first confidence. The psalmist is confident that idols can never satisfy. Verse 4. The sorrows of those who have bartered for another God will be multiplied. I shall not pour out their drink offerings of blood, nor will I take their names upon my lips. Now the gods in this passage are referring to the context of what the psalmist would know. These would would actually be pagan gods, right? Uh, False gods, thinking like with the Greek gods, Athena and Zeus. And you see that language here. It talks about blood sacrifices, very ritualistic and temple-oriented. It talks about not bringing their names up to their lips. There's, There's this idea that I don't even want to talk about that. How does that apply to us? I would propose that it directly applies to the 21st century pilgrim. If you're a Christian day, you and I, as stated by the theologian, Millard Erickson, the essence of sin, the disobedience of God is simply failure to let God be God. It is placing something else, anything else in the supreme place, which is his alone. Indeed, our gods, well, maybe not pagan deities are anything that we worship Besides the God revealed in scripture, the one true God. It could be our hobbies. It could be our families. It could be our jobs. And the list goes on and on. Indeed, we Americans, we have a marketplace, a plethora of false gods. Notice the psalmist language here. The sorrows, verse four, the sorrows of those who bartered for another God. When's the last time you bartered? Mine's at a garage sale, right? You see a cutting board? It's worth $1. I'll give you 50 cents, right? I'm pretty pretty smooth when it comes to bartering. Yeah, right. But the idea is, is that that's the language here, okay? Thinking marketplace. Now, some of your other translations might say hasten after or chase after. The Hebrew word here that actually says bartered for, that's the logic here, okay? The the psalmist might be envisioning the marketplace of Jerusalem with all the different smells and sounds and vendors calling for people to buy their goods. And people are hasting from one place to the next. One of the most common gods, little g, of 21st century America is the God of entertainment. Would you agree? Indeed, many of us here are probably guilty of the notorious Netflix binge, the dreaded Facebook scroll of death, right? And how does that go? You know, my last, my last show was Obi-Wan Kenobi, big Star Wars fan. It was okay. But when you see that first episode, right, you're kind of in, you give it a chance, but then you keep watching, and, and many of us relate to this, you get invested in the characters, If you're a big nerd like me, you do the fandom wiki even. You look forward to the next episode. In the next episode, you're getting in in depth into the story. You're really, you're loving it, right? The season finale finally comes out and it's been months, maybe for some shows, years that you've been watching the show. You're invested. And then maybe you have a watch party. You got some guacamole. You got some appetizers. And those final credits are rolling. And what does Netflix have the audacity to put in front of you? The credits are rolling and off to the side, you might be interested in this. Before the credits have even ended, Netflix pushes another show on you, another binge, another month of dedication. And the show you just watched becomes a distant memory. You talk about it sometimes, but you're moving on to bigger, better shows. Friends, that's the picture. That's the picture the psalmist is trying to say. Their sorrows shall be multiplied who barter after another God. He's talking about this constant chasing from one big high, one big idol to the next. And of course, it's not just shows. It could be you're chasing after the next job. It could be chasing after the next house. You moved into your old house. You're like, look at all this room. and All of a sudden, it magically doesn't have as much room anymore, right? We're Americans, we relate to that, I know I do. The next fad, the next TikTok sensation, the next YouTube video, right? The next relationship. Maybe the next political candidate. Maybe after this sermon, the next church. I hope not. I hope you stick around. (laughs) The psalmist later puts it this way in Psalm 135, the idols of the nations are false gods are but silver and gold, the work of man's hands. They have mouths, but they don't speak. They have eyes, but they don't see. They have ears, but they do not hear. Nor is there any breath at all in their mouths. Those who make them will be like them. Yes, everyone who trusts in them. What is the sorrow being outlined in this this psalm? What is chasing after false gods do to our hearts, to my heart? It creates a numbness in the hearts of man, a dissatisfaction. It cuts you off from seeing or hearing anything else besides your idol, besides the next God to worship. False gods, idols, steal your contentment. That's the sorrow outlined here. Indeed, you could put it this way. Dead gods create dead hearts in their followers now contrast that to the words of jesus christ he was walking around and he came across a samaritan woman she was chasing after idols she had had one husband after the next just think of your idols and put it in there and they met the two of them at the well and jesus says this to her john chapter 4 verse 14 Everyone who drinks of this water, speaking of the well, but you see the implication, everyone who drinks of this water will thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him shall never thirst. But the water that I give him will become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. Contrary to the never-ending marketplace of idols, Jesus offers a fountain of living water, one that bubbles up in the hearts of his saints continually and never runs dry. Friends, the psalmist was confident that only in God was the fullness of joy found. He knew that all other gods, although for a moment might be half joys, could never and would never satisfy him like his God would. Are you confident of this? Now you might be sitting here this morning and be like, hey, listen, I like stuff. I have hobbies. I have things that I'm pretty involved in. I don't know if it's a God. And that might be true. That might be true for for many of us. But I have a little equation for you. Time plus treasure plus thoughts equals throne. Mark it down. What are you spending your time on? Where is your money going? And more importantly, where are your thoughts residing? (laughs) Can I be really transparent with you this morning? I was born in the 90s, grew up through the 2000s. And you know what one of my idols is, as pathetic as it sounds? Video games. Yeah, if you didn't think I was a nerd before, now you know. (laughs) But do they take a lot of time? You bet they do. Do they take a lot of my treasure? You bet they do. But you know what really changed my mind about this false idol in my life? When I got married. (laughs) Imagine that, right? And I saw that when I should be ministering and loving my wife and being all in for her and all in for the church and all in for God's ministry, I was thinking about other things. I was thinking about games, as pathetic as it sounds. Now, am I saying you can't enjoy anything? Of course not. We're not called to be monks, right? just live up on some mountain. But Proverbs 25 puts it this way. Have you found, honey, something sweet in your life? Eat only what you need, that you not have it in excess and vomit it out. The excess there is the numbness. It's the kind of excess that, that where you can't see anything else. You can only see your idol. The Christian can still enjoy good things in their life but not at the expense of his allegiance and worship of the God who created him, saved him, and sustains him. To do anything else is a false worship. A confidence that will preserve you this morning, despite what life throws at you, is one that sees the futility of idols. Next, going along the same line, verse five and six, the psalmist is confident That God is his only portion. Verse 5 and 6. The Lord is the portion of my inheritance and my cup. You support my lot. The lines have fallen to me in pleasant places. Indeed, my heritage is beautiful to me. I'm convinced that if you need to hear anything today, any confidence that you need to dwell in, It's this one. This has wrecked my life in a good way. Now, as you're reading, you've you've heard this terminology before. God's our portion. He's our allotment. But what might sound kind of strange from this psalm is when he starts talking about lines. The lines have fallen to me in pleasant places. What What does that mean? Well, that verse only makes sense within the context of the rest of the Old Testament. Many of you might be familiar with the story of Joshua, the warrior God with a strong hand brought the tribe of Israel out of Egypt, led by Moses. They went through the desert for 40 years due to their disobedience, but God promised them a land. Joshua is the leader that brought them into that land, kicked out the other false nations and they took possession of the land. So Joshua is the one that led them into that promised land that God gave them through much trial and tribulation. Now, the part that a lot of people skip over in Joshua's story is Joshua giving out portions of that conquered land. As outlined in Joshua chapter 13, each Israelite tribe is given a piece of the promised land that they took from the Canaanites and from the other people living there. Reuben got some, Gad got some, and they would build out lines. To tell whose land was which. But there was one tribe that did not receive an allotment the tribe of Levi. As outlined in Joshua chapter 13, these are the territories which Moses apportioned, there's that word, for an inheritance in the plains of Moab, beyond the Jordan, at Jericho to the east. But to the tribe of Levi, Moses did not give an inheritance. The Lord, the God of Israel is their inheritance as he has promised to them. Who was the tribe of Levi in the Old Testament? They were the tribe of priests. They were the tribe of Israel that was set apart to be intimately involved with God. These are the ones that communed with God in the tabernacle. These are the ones that slept around the tabernacle, whereas all other tribes were further away. These are the ones who taught the sons of Israel and interceded for them with animal sacrifice. Of all the 12 tribes of Israel, the tribe of Levi had the most intimate relationship with God. And yet they have no allotment in the promised land. Any allotment they received would have been from other people's tribes. Their lines did not give them any land. Why does that matter to us? Well, the Apostle Peter writes, speaking of Christians in 1 Peter 2.9, But you, Christian, are a chosen race, a royal, say it, priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Friends, if the tribe of Levi had intimacy with the living God, how much more intimacy do we followers of Christ have? We who through Christ shed blood are adopted into his family forever. We who can commune with him through prayer without any fear of our sin getting in the way because of what Christ has done. We who are seen as perfectly righteous and perfectly pure due to God due to Christ finish work on the cross. If the Levites had intimacy with God Almighty, you Christian through Jesus have so much more. So what am I saying? If you're a Christian here today and you want a confidence that preserves you, you must Hold tight to two incredibly important truths. First of all, your portion, my portion, our portion is God alone. Second, if that's true, then we are entitled to nothing else. Christian, you're not entitled to being comfortable. Neither am I. We're not entitled to an easy life. We're not entitled to never face persecution from our friends from our family, and yes, even from our government. We're not entitled to money. We're not entitled to status. We're not entitled to fame. So many Christians are full of rage and bitterness and anxiety because they think they're entitled to the security that the world offers. I'm guilty of it too. And have been many times. But our portion is found in one thing and one thing only, and that is the risen Lord Jesus Christ. So the question must be, is he enough? Indeed, if, if you're with me, if you're sitting in the auditorium today and you're not a Christian, which we can't assume everybody is, you might hear me talking about this. You're like, woof, what a lousy deal. You're saying, if I become a Christian, I'm not entitled to anything else. Yes, that is exactly what I'm telling you. That might be hard to hear. And yet, the Apostle Paul writes, oops, the Apostle Paul writes, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ. Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish that I might gain Christ. Philippians 3, 8. How can Paul say such things? Because he understands the truth of his inheritance. He believes the same thing that James believed when he wrote in James 1.17. Every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. Friends, any good thing that you've experienced in your life Any joy that you currently experience is but a figment of the greater good that is the risen Lord Jesus. And if you realize that he's your greatest good and that he's your portion, how's that going to change your life? Well, first of all, you're going to stop chasing lesser portions. You're going to have way more joy. You see... Since I've become a Christian, things that used to bother me, and there's still a lot. But some things just wash off. Because you know what? Like, I'm not, I'm not entitled to that, right? That's not my portion. You're not going to be as angry at people because the way people treat you is not going to affect what your portion is. You won't be so unwilling to serve. A person whose portion is God will exude with love. Why? Because they realize that they already have everything they've ever wanted. Friends, I am convinced this morning that that is the great power held by the legends of our faith. Of all the apostles that spread the kingdom of God, most of them were killed brutally as martyrs. Martin Luther, the great reformer, stood before the Holy Roman Emperor and denounced that it was a works-based faith standing on this alone as his foundation. Jim Elliott went to the people he was the minister to and got killed by them. And Dietrich Bonhoeffer continued to preach the word of God despite the tyranny of the Nazi regime. How'd they do it? How can we do it? When you realize you already have everything God can give you, you are willing to give God everything you have. That's how they do it. That's how Paul did it. That's how we can do it. Now that sounds all well and good in theory, but is God really enough? Rachel and I have been married for four years now. It's been a joy. I wouldn't be the man you see right now without that beautiful woman down there. But here's the deal. The last two years, we've desired to be parents. Uh, I'm a public school teacher. She did table kids for years, so we love kids. And some of you are like, "Wow, you want more kids? Don't you already have enough?" We worked with children our whole lives, and a year ago, Rachel got pregnant for the first time. We were overjoyed with excitement, anticipation. You, many of you, have been there, right? Maybe you're there now. We were already deciding on names. We were rearranging our house. Rachel's like, "Your study, gotta go." No room for that anymore. We told a large number of our friends and family. You could say that we were confident that we were going to be parents. About one month passed and Rachel and I both got sick with COVID. About two weeks later, Rachel started to miscarry and we lost the baby. Now, I know that many of you in here today have struggled with that very thing. My heart goes out to you. It was extremely difficult. A lot of tears. It was as if there was just a palpable darkness in our apartment. And yet I can, I can report to you, saints, that in that moment, God was never closer to me than in my entire life. I told the rest of my friends, it was as if Jesus was walking around the apartment. Because he is our refuge. Fast forward another year. We just celebrated our four-year anniversary, as I said. And about a week later, we discovered that Rachel was pregnant again. Praise the Lord. In about two weeks since this date, she's, she miscarried again. And we lost the baby. Now, why am I telling you this? Friends, I desire to be a dad. I desire to raise my children to get to know them, to love them, to see them grow up. But I am not entitled to be a father. God is the portion of my inheritance and my cup. He supports my lot. The lines have fallen to me in pleasant places. Indeed, my heritage is beautiful to me. If my confidence is in being a father, if your confidence is in your job or your reputation or your ministry or your riches, then your confidence is shakeable. But if God is our portion and God alone, I can overcome whatever life throws at me. <laughs> Perhaps A.W. Tozer put it best when he said, whatever is given to God is safe. With God. But whatever is kept from God is never safe. That might scare some of you. Don't let it scare you. Christian, your Creator loves you enough that He is willing to strip you of all other idols that you might see the perfect satisfaction you have in Him. I desire to be a dad but that can't be higher than my portion of God. He's a better portion. A confidence that preserves is one that sees God as your ultimate portion of life. Now, maybe you're struggling right now. Colton, that's that's great. And I I get it. I can't live like that. Friends, I've I've been there. I've had that thought. I had that thought when you're going through it. There's one last confidence for you. Verse 7 through 11, the psalmist is confident that God will give him confidence. Verse 7, <clears throat> I will bless the Lord who has counseled me. Indeed, my mind instructs me in the night. I have set the Lord continually before me because he is at my right hand. I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my glory rejoices. My flesh also will dwell securely. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, or death, nor will you allow your Holy One to undergo decay. You will make known to me the path of life. In your presence is the fullness of joy. In your right hand, there are pleasures forever. Do you remember the beginning of the psalm? The psalmist puts his hands up. He says, preserve me, God. You see, before saying all these confidences, the psalmist is just like you and I, right? He, he knows that he doesn't live like this all the time. And yet he has hope because he knows that God's going to preserve him both in life and in life to come. As Curtis said, this is my first time doing this. You can be the judge of how it's going. But... If you've been at for any amount of time, you know that whenever the speaker, whoever's speaking, their 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 wife sits down here, right? And my beautiful bride Rachel's right down here, as well as, well as many of my family. Why do we put them there? So that when everybody else is like uh, falling asleep and it's kind of rough, I can just look at Rachel's beautiful face and a new surge of energy comes up, right? <laughs> Friends, it is the same with Jesus. If you are struggling to be confident today in what I've described, then you must do as the psalmist writes and set the Lord continually before you. Just It's like what Pastor Kurt spoke on a couple weeks ago. If we are not abiding in Christ, that is reading his word, praying for wisdom, delighting in his saints, we can't do anything. The only reason that we can have this confidence is when we see him. The author of Hebrews puts it best, fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and the perfecter of our faith. We can only be confident in the things mentioned this morning if we're first confident in him. Of course, the question must be this morning, are you confident in him, in the Lord Jesus Christ? You see, a portion and an inheritance by definition, has to be given. That's what it means, right? And if you're a true born-again Christian, your inheritance, your portion, won for you by Christ, is God himself. And friends, there's no better portion to be had. But if you don't know Christ, and we can't assume everybody does, if you've not fully trusted in him alone for your salvation, you have another portion the book of Romans chapter six, verse 23 says, the wages or the portion of sin is death. Romans three twenty-three says that all have sinned and all fall short of the glory of God. You want to know how you, what you would have to do to gain this inheritance? You would have to be utterly perfect. God's standard is perfection. You can't reach God on your own. No amount of good works, Church attendance, godly family, or morality will make you inherit heaven. It all falls short. You can only gain the inheritance of Christ if it was first given to you by Christ. And the good news of the gospel is that it is being given. That's what the gospel is. When Jesus came to earth as a baby, lived a perfect life, and died on that cross... He was taking your portion that you deserve, death, separation from God. And what was he doing? He was giving you his portion, which is to live with his father in heaven forever. If you are not a Christian this morning, if you're trusting on anything else besides Jesus's shed blood on the cross for your salvation, Christ is offering it to you. He's offering you the greatest thing that anyone can offer another person, himself. And he does this knowing that you have nothing to offer him besides your sin and your false idols. And yet, he accepts you freely. I'm convinced that the greatest pleasure in heaven will not be the perfection of our bodies, the absence of sin, or the beauty of the new earth, although all those will be amazing, the greatest pleasure in heaven will be the fact that God, our portion, will be with his people. We'll finally be able to reside in the actual presence of our Savior. Notice the psalmist language here. You will make known to me the path of life. Jesus once said in John fourteen six, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. No one comes to the father except through me. Do you want a confidence that's going to preserve you no matter what? Realize you're a sinner. Realize you can never gain this this inheritance, this portion on your own. Repent of your sins. Say, Jesus, I can't do it. I need you. And put your full confidence in Jesus. He will not despise a broken heart. Believe that he died for you, he rose again for you, and he's now seated at the right hand of God. Only then will you have the fullness of joy and pleasures forever that are found in God alone. Your portion. Let's pray. (laughs) Father God, we come before you, Lord, weak and weary, Lord, we come before you just distracted. I know I'm there too, Lord. God, I pray for all the saints, the born-again Christians in this room, Lord. May they realize that you are their portion, Lord. And God, they're not entitled to anything else, and yet they have joy because all good comes from you. And Lord, I pray for those in this room that don't know you, Lord Jesus. May they realize that their portion's only death. And through that, God, repent, confess that they're a sinner, confess they can never reach you on their own, and Lord Jesus, you'll give them the water that never runs dry. We honor your name, we love you, we ask this all in Jesus' name, amen.